0: Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com slash audioboom.
1: Hi, it's Tom here. Before we get into this week's podcast, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has supported our show by listening, by subscribing, by sharing, and most importantly, by donating. Spike's content is free, and it always will be. It's thanks to your donations, and regular donations in particular, that we've been able to keep going and growing. The Spike podcast has now grown to a point where we're able to get sponsorship. What that means for you is that there's another way that you can support us by checking out some of the deals that we're able to pass your way, but donations are still by far the best and most direct way to support us. So if you think that we're doing something right, saying what needs to be said, challenging what needs to be challenged, then please do consider starting a regular donation if you haven't already. Even £5 each month can go a long way. So if you'd like to make a donation, you can do that by going to spiked-online.com and clicking on the big red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the big red donate button in the top right corner. Thanks so much and now on with the show.
2: Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and joining me as ever, we have Spiked Deputy Editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, whiteness, social media censorship, and Boris Johnson's New Deal solution lies with white people.
0: White fragility is the defensiveness that erupts whenever white people are challenged on their racial worldviews. What privilege does mean is that your skin color didn't make your life more challenging.
3: I think as a white woman of privilege, it is also my responsibility to lift up those voices that aren't being listened to.
2: Talk of whiteness is everywhere lately. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, the book White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo shot to the top of the bestsellers lists. White people are exhorted to examine their whiteness and check their white privilege. Whiteness is considered all-pervasive and responsible for many of the world's ills. Even people of colour can embody whiteness when they behave in certain ways. But what does any of this actually mean? And can we really forge a progressive politics out of a critique of whiteness? Ella, do you wanna kick us off on this?
3: Yeah, well, as to the question if you can build a progressive politics out of the idea of whiteness, you simply can't. Because the whole point about this obsession with whiteness and blackness and the you know, basing a kind of political argument on the issue of skin colour you know, the obvious point is that this is a road that leads to prejudice and has led to prejudice inevitably in the past. But also it's it's the archetype of what identity politics is about, which means it's really limiting, most importantly, for the person who's perpetuating it. So there is, you know, bar serious medical intervention, I cannot change my Whiteness. It is something that has happened to me at birth out of my control. But what I can change are my political views, are the actions I take in life, are my morals, all these things that are within my ability as a free agent and a thinking human being. And the whole idea behind the kind of politics of whiteness is that it is this, as we've said before on this podcast, the idea of original sin that is sort of almost. Unchangeable. This is the thing that upsets me most about all of this. It's it's this idea. It's this thing that we have to just manage. This kind of elephant in the room that people sort of have to skirt around, rather than talking about racism as something that's an ill in society that can be overcome through genuine progressive politics. And you know, the thing that's been really worrying me this week, and I don't know what you guys think about it, but people are stepping away from Black Lives Matter because. They, you know, there's all this fuss about them being, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, Marxist. <laughs> there's a big fuss about them having stuff about the patriarchy and anti-capitalism and all. They defund the police and you know these kind of buzzwords that they've thrown into their sort of makeshift manifestos and and everyone's saying, oh, they're these awful kind of left wing people and it's a bit like when right wing people get obsessed about cultural Marxism and all of that and so people are backing away. But what's actually left? Is that people are saying, well, Black Lives Matter is the extreme. We can't be like that. But what we do have to talk about is whiteness, is white privilege, you know, and people might stop putting hashtag BLM in their Twitter profiles or on their corporate policies or in their shop windows. But the thing that is lasting is this sort of very insidious idea and wrongful belief that whiteness is something we have to tackle in society it's almost like that's the people see it as that's the intellectual thing that should be given weight when actually it's completely the other way around that there are some elements of the kind of angstiness of black life matters protests that have positives in them but it's the the focus of all the political ideas around the concept of whiteness which is the most damaging you know this is something that you you get called a a bigot, especially as a white person, for coming out and hmm. saying, No, I am not afflicted by this thing called whiteness. But you have to have the balls to come out and say, that is not true. The Emperor's got no clothes on. I'm going to deal with reality here. Otherwise, I can see this going down a very dark route for societal cohesion. Because the the further you push this kind of destructive identity politics, the nastier the backlash will be.
1: Tom. Well I think it's really interesting the shift we've seen from really talking about kind of anti-racism to talking about whiteness itself. It's almost like anti-whiteness is more the project of these people these days, by which I don't mean kind of anti-white racism or anything like that but this art this concept this very nebulous very incoherent idea that whilst society has moved on in certain ways that it's only because the racism is more hidden you know you can't really mm. see it it's a kind of weird like intellectual conspiracy theory it's like the the absence of obvious expressions of it is almost proof that it's there it's this very strange kind of set of ideas enunciated by d'angelo and others and the thing i think is significant about that is it really gets to grips with how degraded an anti-racist project, if we even want to call it that, this stuff is. I think, first of all, because it centres white people at the centre of absolutely everything. It treats the project of trying to create a more equal society as one of trying to create this almost religious awakening amongst the white population, so that they recognise that they benefit from their whiteness. They recognise that even if they don't think they're prejudiced, they are in so many kind of subliminal ways. And one aspect of that, which I think is so deadening, is that Basically, it's a kind of racial paternalism, whether they realise it or not. It's basically saying that it's the job of white people to get their own house in order so that everyone else can enjoy a better quality of life and completely... Removes any agency from the communities they claim to be wanting to lift up. And I think that's a, that's a really kind of striking feature of it. And the other thing, just picking up on what Ella was saying, this idea of white fragility is really interesting in the Robin DiAngelo book, you know, top of the bestseller lists. This white woman who's paid exorbitant amounts of money to go and lecture other people about whiteness. Very strange racket. But the thing I think striking about that, I don't want to turn it on his head because what I find really interesting about these people as well is they're kind of like woke fragility. Mm. Like if you even just point out that things have gotten far better than they were. 10, 20, 30 years ago that really upsets them. If you even try to suggest that all of this focus on identity is potentially regressive it can only really play into the hands of bad actors. That The colorblind ideal of MLK etc is is a far more progressive standard. Again they kind of bulk at that. You know they have that defensiveness that you hear about that white people supposedly constantly express whenever the race issue is brought up is kind of actually far more significant on their side. I think because what that really gets to grits with is whether or not this is a conscious process or not These people are far more wedded to a racialized view of society than anyone else, certainly in the mainstream at the moment. Their whole movement is basically devoted to maintaining this view of society and this approach to politics, which is for us to constantly think in racial terms, either to understand our inherent privileges and therefore overcome them in this vague kind of spiritual way, or to constantly recognise the downtrodden status of certain groups, even if the reality is not quite as simple as all of that. And I think it's just worth stressing that whilst oftentimes there's a temptation to say identity politics, left identity politics, its heart's in the right place, but, you know, it goes a bit wrong. It just goes a little bit too far. I think we've got to recognise that particularly because of the mainstream hold it has, as we've seen in the past recent weeks, that it is one of the biggest blocks to a kind of post-racial, anti-racist worldview is this movement precisely. You know, the far right is a marginal thing. We should take it seriously. We should confront it. But at the same time, this very mainstream form of racialism, in the form of left identity politics, is far more of a pressing concern, I think, at the moment for anyone who genuinely wants to live in that kind of colourblind society.
2: And the two feed each other because, you know, it's pretty obvious that if you're pushing the idea that white people need to recognise themselves as white, it's not necessarily a great intellectual leap to go from that To suddenly being proud of your white identity. I mean, what's what's kind of strange about the Robin D'Angelos of this world is that they want people to cultivate a white identity, but they want it to be based entirely on feeling ashamed, checking your privilege, recognizing that you you don't deserve any of your achievements or anything like that. Which is, you know, that might have an appeal to self-hating liberals, to people who actually have pretty decent lives. But it's probably not going to appeal to people who, you know, don't feel very privileged and are a bit perplexed by this whole movement. And yeah, the worst possible response could be that people turn around and say, well, actually, yeah, I am white and I'm proud of it you should be able to say, well, I'm white and so what? That's what we should hope to be the end of it. The other thing I think that's really important to recognise, um, you know, this it, it is really hard to pin down what is actually meant by whiteness a lot of the time, because it, it does go beyond simply having white skin. Whiteness has this kind of metaphysical property, you know, sometimes it's used as a kind of floating signifier to the point where people of colour can be said to enact whiteness. I mean, the classic example is in a kind of New York Times essay, which talked about these boys in New Jersey of Indian heritage who basically were harassing some African-American girls and it described them as enacting whiteness. And they these boys were the products of the evolution of of whiteness. I mean, now to some extent, you know, it's true. Obviously, whiteness is a social construct and like all race is completely a fabricated thing. It has no Tangible meaning, and that means that whiteness can expand to encompass new groups of white people in ways that it didn't in the past, and it might exclude others at different times. But at the same time, it it is kind of impossible to keep up with what are people really saying when they mean whiteness, or you know, when they use this kind of phrase "white," especially you know, when they say it with such venom and anger, when they probably just mean bad or deceptive or, or racist. So it's quite hard to get your head around it, Ella.
3: It's just a byword for for being an asshole. That that basically is what whiteness is. It's this. That's why people always talk about it in relation to, you know, the phenomenon of Karens. You know, an annoying woman It's talked about as being something that is exhibiting whiteness and football louts. It's just a throwaway negative term. But there's one thing that's when you talk about the fact that this is whiteness and white privilege is seen as something that you are sort of inherently born with as a white person and that you have to, through this process of listening to you know, the Robin De Angelos of the world, you're going to try and suppress this in favour of listening to your black friends. The perfect way in which this was displayed is in this Channel 4 documentary that's being aired at the moment causing a huge amount of upset, the school that tried to end racism. And it is the most incredible thing because if anyone who watches it, it is such an upsetting thing to watch. You know, I don't want to throw around the word child abuse, but it is so unpleasant what they're doing to these children. But it is exactly what is behind this whole idea of whiteness, that it's something that is inherent within you. It's unconscious. You have no control over it. And you have to sort of be psychologically bullied out of it. And in this show, it's a kind of social experiment putting white kids in one place and black kids in another place and treating them differently. And essentially, basically, it's perpetuating this idea that it doesn't matter what these white kids do, they are wrong and evil. It's impossible for them to be good. and They have to be taught that they are inherently bad and that if they ever have a chance of being good, they've got to just kowtow to this whole idea of them basically having the the original sin of racism inside of them. And within that, it re- it's such a great thing to watch because it reveals all the problems of the current discussion about anti-racism. There is no space for forgiveness. There is no space for having a discussion. There is no space for the benefit of the doubt, even with children, even with children. So, you know, what I hope is that the crazier that this gets, and I really think that the school that wants to end racism, the Channel 4 program, is mental. It's just bizarre. The crazier this gets, the more ordinary people who aren't necessarily tuned into the kind of more peculiar aspects of identity politics start to realise that this is a real problem and we have to start pushing back against it.
1: I think the other thing I'd chuck in is just the kind of class component of the anti-whiteness rhetoric. And this is something which I think is really, really clear. One example that comes to mind is um, when Jon Snow was reporting from that Pro Brexit rally, and he said that he'd never seen so many white people in all his life. Despite the fact that he's a white man, he's as we know has been to Glastonbury. You know, of course, he's seen white people before, but it was it's those white people. You know, it's working class white people, it's uneducated white people, who are often kind of on the receiving end of this. You also saw it where that little stunt in Bristol, where after the statue of Edward Colston was pulled down, someone put up this other kind of statue nearby it, which was basically just like a fat white working class bloke in a string vest on his phone with something that said England for the English or something like this. And you just really see how this kind of politics, that's kind of who they have in mind. And I think the thing that's worth pointing out in relation to that is that racialist politics has always been mobilised to try and divide up the working class, to set it against each other, because the masses are more dangerous when they're united, etc. And whether or not they realise it or not, this woke politics and these woke people are creating precisely the same effect. They're trying to suggest to people of similar economic interests that their interests are actually entirely different, if not actually, you know agitating against one another on the basis of race... And they're creating so much unnecessary division um, on the basis of all of this mad rhetoric. And, you know, coming back to that point about their kind of woke fragility, if you even though these people claim to be interested in left-wing politics, Marxist politics, even potentially in the case of some of these Black Lives Matter people, if you even raise the issue of class these days, they treat that as a racist dog whistle. Like they mm. think you're purely talking about the white working class, even though no one ever brings race into it when we're talking about that kind of thing. And I think it just really demonstrates that at, at the moment, again, this form of politics it's having that really ugly, divisive effect that the old racialism has. And I think we really need to to get to grips with that if we're going to get over it and actually get back to a form of politics which isn't just obsessed with all of us wallowing in either our privilege or victimhood, but actually fighting to make society a better place. I think getting rid of this woke bollocks is the prerequisite of all that at this point.
2: Right, before we move on, I just want to tell you a bit about Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service for men and women – An expert stylist picks clothes just for you based on your taste, size and price preferences and sends them straight to your door. It's perfect if you want to discover something new or have someone do the hard work of shopping for you. So, how does it work? It's easy and fun. You fill out a style profile about your clothing preferences, including how much you like to pay. Then it's over to your stylist who will hand select and send you five items of clothing and accessories in your preferred fit and style. You try them on at home and decide which to buy. Then, simply pay for what you keep and send back the rest with free returns. There is a charge of just £10 for your stylist's time, which is redeemable against anything you decide to keep. I know a lot of us have not exactly been making an effort to look our best while we've been working from home, but the pubs do open this weekend, so maybe now's the time to get back to thinking about dressing well again. Stitch Fix is a fun way to treat yourself and to get to know your style – You might discover something you love that you might never have picked for yourself. Stitch Fix stocks over a hundred men's and women's brands, including well-known names, more niche emerging designers, and their own exclusive in-house brands you won't find anywhere else. Remember, it's just that £10 fee you're paying for the stylist's time, and you can redeem that against anything you keep. You can even get styling tips on top. Your stylist will give you ideas about how best to wear your new clothes. And it's not one of those subscription services that catches you out. You can order a one-off delivery whenever you like. So get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash spiked right now. That's s-t-i-t-c-h-f-i-x.co.uk forward slash spiked. More than 300 major advertisers have staged a boycott of Facebook. Corporate giants like Unilever, Coca-Cola and Pfizer have paused their advertising spending on Facebook until the platform does more to moderate the content it hosts, particularly hate speech. In other words, one group of billionaires have called on another billionaire to introduce further controls on what ordinary people can and can't say on the internet. Recently, Twitter has permanently suspended racist motormouth Katie Hopkins and Father Ted creator Graham Linehan. Reddit has banned a number of subreddits, including one called The Donalds, one devoted to the left-wing podcast Chapo Trap House, and one called Gender Critical, a feminist community which criticises modern gender politics. So, Tom, um, tell us a bit more about the Facebook
1: boycott, first of all. Well, I think it's really interesting because, as you say, it's basically a group of multi-billion dollar companies demanding that another multi-billion dollar company censor speech for the rest of us to actually control what it is that we're allowed to read and to hear on Facebook in particular – the fact that it's being applauded by liberals and the left and egged on by them, I think is pretty staggering. There was even an article in Axios last week which talked about it as a bottom-up revolution, which is quite a strange way to look at it. And even that article noted that Harry and Meghan were involved behind the scenes. So yeah, a sort of revolution launched by huge corporates and um, literal monarchs, which is quite interesting. But what's quite striking about this is that actually it all came off the back of two Trump tweets. So at the end of May, he famously tweeted basically kind of sowing some nonsense about the idea that mail-out votes in California was somehow going to lead to voter fraud. Um, Twitter famously fact-checked him. And then he posted a tweet a couple of days later where in response to the riots that had broken out in America said, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Again, Twitter put some kind of warning on this. Both these posts appeared on Facebook. They decided not to do anything about it, arguing quite reasonably that social media companies should not really be in the business <laughs> of limiting what publicly elected politicians should be able to say, trying to get in the way of them and the electorate. And just the backlash to them has been absolutely remarkable. You know, it's been from without in terms of these advertisers, Unilever, etc. But also from within, there was this virtual walkout amongst Facebook staffers last month. And the absurd thing about it is that you kind of think that they genuinely want these social media companies to just ban the President of the United States. Mm. They want to cancel Donald Trump, which at best seems slightly absurd and probably not going to work if you're trying to um, diminish his reach in society, he still holds that office. But I think the thing that's worth remembering is that this didn't start with Donald Trump and it's not going to end with Donald Trump either. This kind of censorship has been ramping up for quite some time. This idea implicit in a lot of the criticism of Facebook that's been incredibly laissez-faire all of these years is, is nonsense. It's been slowly you know, broadening its definitions of hate speech over the COVID crisis, as we've spoken about recently. It's also led to all kinds of censorship and dissenting views. And as you've seen in, again, the examples with Reddit, YouTube have also taken down a number of racist and kind of alt-right accounts recently. This is about cleansing the online space of what is deemed to be offensive and hateful speech, full stop. Trump has become a particular and slightly absurd rallying point for all of it. But what I think we've seen in the wake of first the COVID crisis, now the kind of Black Lives Matter hysteria is that it's turbocharged all of those trends, all of those pressures that we saw previously for social media companies to censor speech. And I think people who are kind of rushing into this just need to think about what it is that they're actually doing here, is that they're effectively handing moral authority and egging on billionaire corporates to control what is in effect a large part of the public sphere. And just because the people they're going after today might be people that someone might happen to dislike there's no guarantee that they're going to agree with those decisions and those forms of censorship later so it just seems to be incredibly short-sighted incredibly illiberal and i think it's yeah it's just a sign of worse to come at this point ella
3: well it's that key point about the fact that this is going to and has been growing for a long time is the real problem because it's very easy think of an example of something that was deeply upsetting that went all over social media that was very important i mean just recently the killing of george floyd you know a horrible video you're watching someone die is going to be upsetting for a huge number of people should it be banned no because it's something that quite clearly needed to be seen and has sparked a very important and huge political debate about all sorts of things in the same way that you know it's Hugely important to know and be able to see what the president of the United States is thinking, even if it's the most utter trash, and even if actually he's bullshitting, which I think a lot of the time he is doing. You know, it also doesn't take long to see the kind of uh, the bias in a lot of this and to see the double standards. I mean, remember the Brexit debate? I mean, I can't believe the amount of class hatred that. High profile figures were putting out on social media speeches from politicians, you know, posts from celebrities. Some incredibly vile stuff was going out and caused a lot of upset and hurt to people. And no one talked about that as hate speech or something that should be banned. But when it's a different kind of harm to do with, you know, someone being a bit sexist, someone being a bit racist, then, you know, people have no qualms in shutting it down. And at the end of the day, you have to say, is this a public sphere or is it not? And most people, I think, now have come to the conclusion that platforms like Facebook and Twitter, and yes, Reddit, and these other sort of, from my point of view, slightly weirder arenas, are especially during lockdown, are taking the place of the public sphere. It's where people have conversations. And the interesting thing about Facebook, which people like Jamie Bartlett and authors like that have uh, who've looked into the sort of the data behind these platforms have shown is that Twitter is a very certain section of society. You know, journalists and commentators like us and, you know, lots of I mean, more middle class sort of liberal audience and facebook tends to be especially in america people from a more recognizable working class background so the idea that you want to ban things off of it or even more insultingly that companies are you know saying we won't advertise on there because what well, all of you lot are just engaged in a horrible hate speech rather than actually what most people do which is post pictures of their dogs and occasionally put something up that's like that's a bit political it 's basically it's a it 's a vote of no confidence in the public that 's always what censorship around social media is it 's saying that you can 't trust the public to sort through fact from fiction or horrible thing from righteous thing and make their own minds up we 've said this a million times before on this podcast, but free speech is a sort of an indivisible thing. You cannot have a if and a but around it. And the more you try to argue that you can have ifs and buts around it simply for things that ups- might upset you, the more you're leaving yourself and your views open to being censored. And that's why the interesting thing is we're seeing both right-wing and left-wing people suffering from this. It's gone beyond just being the kind of mad cases that we used to talk about, like Alex Jones, Katie Hopkins. It's now people who are, you know, from my point of view, saying some very sensible things that are being taken off these platforms.
2: I think the left and right thing is really important because I think, you know, there's been a tendency on both sides, actually, for either among the left to say, oh, you know, the free speech crisis is fake. There's no free speech problem because Mm. the only people being censored are bigots and racists and transphobes. And then you have on the right, People saying this is entirely a problem of liberal bias in Silicon Valley, which is, you know, that's a real thing. They're not wrong about that. Censoring conservative voices and conservative voices must stand up for other conservatives, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, as the Reddit story shows, you're talking about basically not just a subreddit called the Donald, which is obviously a place for Trump fans to coalesce, but also Chapo Trap House, which is, you know, famous. Left wing podcast, which associated with Bernie Sanders. They're very foul mouths and rude and all that stuff, which is kind of why people like it and why it's, why it's funny. There's also a podcast called come town, which is a very similar kind of crowd. What kind of people might call the, the dirtbag left, or I coined the phrase the anti woke left sometime <laughs> last year to describe this grouping of people. But again, you know, they're left wing, but they're, they're piss takey or gender critical. They're, you know, they're feminists, but they're worried about transgender issues as many feminists are what's interesting about the trans debate and lots of people getting banned is that it's drawing in quite a lot of people who are totally centrist liberals on kind of all other issues but kind of disagree on this one so now we cannot be in denial about the fact that censorship could come for anyone and it is coming from all sides and from anyone who basically deviates slightly from the pretty narrow orthodoxy
1: Tom. Just on that point, because I think the left are going to get a rude awakening on this faster than they think, potentially. Because the one thing you'll remember about um, Silicon Valley is obviously there is a group think amongst these people... You know that's pretty obvious, but at the same time, their fundamental interest is in continuing to be able to make money and to hopefully stave off any kind of regulation. You know that's mm. one thing that is really alarming them. Facebook, in particular, have gone on this huge charm offensive in relation to the American right in recent years. You know, trying to demonstrate that they're not censoring conservatives as um, conservatives like to think that they are. And so, what you're basically going to invite is levels of kind of tit for tat censorship. You know, even if it's purely for a kind of PR basis, you could easily see a situation where they're moved to take down this right wing provocateur, so they pull mm. down this left-wing provocateur (laughs) because at the end of the day whilst they might have certain biases certain views they're also going to be fundamentally interested in trying to point to some kind of vestige of balance that they have you know so it's i think that's one thing which um, people have really got to Keep in mind. And I think the other thing that's worth just saying again is that we've just got to stop treating free speech as if it's just a question of shutting up particular individuals who you may or may not find reprehensible. The whole point about free speech, whether it's in the literal public square or the online public square, is it's about the right of all of us not just to say what we want to say, but also to listen to decide for ourselves. And when you get into a situation where there are people who are getting very close to censoring, not only just some random nutcase, but actually the the president of the United States, because they consider his message too toxic to, you know, fall on the ears of the the users on their platform. You can tell we're getting into a pretty bad space in relation to that.
3: The last thing on this is, can we just reflect on how utterly mad it is that Coca-Cola and corporate giants are getting to pose as moral agents in this debate if coca-cola is taking the lead in you know deciding what is the moral stance on what speech you can allow on social media we are in deep trouble
2: have you always been in love with french culture or spanish or italian culture but you know, you never have the time to attend language courses or the effort that you think it's going to take to learn a new language. I've been testing out my beginner Spanish with the Babbel iPhone app in case I ever get to have a holiday this summer, and it's been really fun. Babbel has a clear and simple interface guiding you through your learning journey in a funny and smooth way. It's designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks using daily 10 to 15 minute lessons. Babbel teaches real-life conversations. You learn through interactive dialogues. Speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and accent as well. The lessons are lovingly created by over a 100 language experts, that's real people, and not by a translation machine. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. The teaching method has been proven to be effective across multiple studies. Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress can be synced across all devices. Right now, Babel is offering listeners to the Spiked podcast six months for free with a purchase of a six month subscription with the promo code SPIKED. So go to babbel.co.uk forward slash play and use the promo code SPIKED on your six month subscription. That's B A B B E L.co.uk slash play and the promo code is spiked. Now, back to the Spiked podcast. Boris Johnson has promised a new deal for Britain to offset the dire economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Johnson says he wants the government to put its arms around the people at a time of crisis. And aping Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal of the 1930s, Johnson promised to bring forward billions of pounds worth of infrastructure projects. Clearly, the tone marks a big rhetorical shift from the age of austerity under David Cameron and the free market ideology of Margaret Thatcher. So what does this announcement tell us about Johnson's government? And does the ambitious rhetoric match what's actually being promised?
1: Tom? Well, I think there was certainly a lot of spin around that Dudley speech this week. You know, at the end of the day, this new deal consisted of £5 billion of spending, which was already pledged anyway, for the most part, just bringing that forward. You know, if you're talking about a kind of infrastructure programme that's an incredibly small amount as Phil Mullen put it on Spike this week it's like turning up to a battle with a water pistol you know it's a very small amount of money in the grand scheme of things and especially if you're going to compare it to the New Deal you know the scale of spending in relation to that is there's just no comparison It completely dwarfs it but as you say I think what's interesting is it's is a it's a shift in tone certainly and I think what was probably more revealing rather than Boris's Dudley speech was Michael Gove's Ditchley speech which he gave I think a few days beforehand where he kind of laid out what was basically the kind of approach to this government in relation to to civil service reform, but also in relation to just how how government relates to the people. There was a lot of stress put in that speech on the kind of sense in which, as many people have talked about for a long time, the, the kind of both physical and kind of psychic distance between rulers and ruled, the fact that you had so many people who felt that they'd lost out from globalisation, who weren't recognised, the fact that you had, in the form of all of these different populist revolts and Brexit, a means through which ordinary people kind of reasserted themselves and that politics needed to reattune to that. I think that's a really interesting part of it. Now there's kind of contradictions and there's kind of overselling of this agenda on kind of all sides, you know, on the one hand whilst Boris Johnson's government is often both praised and derided for being quite populist, there's also a kind of weird kind of technocracy still to it in kind of summed up in the figure of Dominic Cummings, it's all about just getting the right smart people in the right places. The smart people we've got at the moment aren't actually that smart, so this, you know, you just have to kind of refresh the civil service, refresh the governing class in order to actually deliver what works for people. You know, there's quite a Blairite tendency to it and I forget who said it but some commentators said that the Johnson project is kind of Blairism plus Brexit on some level but I think what's interesting about it is first of all it's just the complete inability of the left to respond to this they spent ages just talking about this governing party as being either just a kind of continuation of the neoliberal status quo or like hard right proto-fascist that's obviously not the case and I think if anyone's interested in building an alternative they need to recognise that. But I think the other thing is that it's very clear that um, even if the economic plans of this government, from what we've seen so far, don't represent a huge break from the past and seem pretty modest in many respects, they are trying to claim that issue of popular sovereignty and democracy in a slightly incomplete way. But I think that's something which people really need to recognise and it's, and it's territory which, almost more so than the economic stuff, the left has entirely ceded to them at this point. Tom, I think
2: that commentator you're referring to was me on this podcast saying... Boris was Blairism plus Brexit. But anyway, uh, Ella.
3: Phil Mallon ends his column for Spiked This Week talking about this by saying that Johnson's mantra really should be create good jobs. I think that's a really important point because, you know, I certainly share the enthusiasm around the fact that the government is making a point of clearly saying they're not in favor of going down any kind of austerity route, because that was always the fear. I had a real fear when lockdown started that this would be spun into a, you know, the sacrifices we've made, we all have to tighten our belts, and that post the effects of the virus, we would be facing a terrible period of prolonged austerity. But, and, you know, it's good that I think the government is aware of the fact that that won't wash, not least because they've just won an election on the basis of promising regeneration to areas in the UK that before this virus were teetering on the edge. But this idea of good jobs is really important. And for me, this just isn't detailed enough and not to be nitpicky, but take a scenario in which you're a hairdresser or a waitress and you lose your job because of the lockdown. What Are you supposed to be excited by the idea that there's an opening for an engineer in some kind of infrastructure program there's there's massive gaps in this in terms of thinking about you know what it is that this 5 billion or however much is actually going to go to and what the the point that phil is making is you have to address the fact that the UK economy before the word coronavirus was ever on our lips was in dire straits. And that lots of people were working jobs that were not good jobs. I don't mean in terms of sort of moral value, whether you were sort of a waitress or a scientist, but in terms of, you know, good pay, security, progression, the ability for people to make the quality of life better through the progression of their career, we were in a mass period of stagnation. And What you don't want to do is to let the government get away with simply putting a sticking plaster on the issue of the British economy because the wound of it runs much deeper than the horror of the last three months. And we are facing a very difficult thing, which is that off the back of the decisions they've made through a virus, people's lives are going to change quite drastically. And many people who voted for the Tories in December might be thinking along different lines, Come the next general election because I just don't feel that enthusiasm for really tackling the problem head on.
2: I agree completely, Ella, and I think it's actually really important to think about and to and to demand. You know, what are they going to do to restructure the economy? Because we do have so many deep structural problems. And what's kind of quite telling, I suppose, is that you know the government is spending more than ever. You know, spending at least three hundred and thirty billion pounds on the lockdown, for instance. But all that money is basically kind of going essentially just to keep the economy as it is, to keep things frozen. And it can't even succeed at doing that because people still fall through the cracks and companies are still going bust. Whereas if you look at this announcement of just five billion pounds for what are new projects the contrast you know couldn't be clearer so i think it's a welcome shift in tone i think that the state and the government has to be more ambitious and you know we have to expect a greater role for of the state in the economy in in the coming months the state is going to have to lead us out of a state imposed recession there's no two ways around that and the state is the only kind of institution that we have that can organize the economic restructuring that we need but at the same time As Phil Mullen points out, there is a danger that we rest on our laurels and that we use the state to simply promote stability rather than growth and actual development and increases in productivity and new industries and new jobs and better pay.
1: And I think just on that point, and Phil makes this point very strongly, which is the fact this kind of myth that the economy was just fantastic, you know, before COVID came along, that everything was brilliant. The Tories in particular would obviously talk up the unemployment figures, how low they were, you know, all of that was built on very low pay, low skill, insecure work for many people. And the COVID crisis, I think, you know, as he points out, really hastens the need for that restructuring, rather than being something which has prompted the need for it in and of itself. And I think it's important to recognise that. I think what's going to be interesting on a political level is how this kind of plays out in relation to as ella was saying the tory party and this kind of new base that they have in the formerly the red wall now the blue walls they like to refer to it as and what's striking about that is whilst i don't have any illusions about the radicalism of this project it's so clear and striking that whereas for many many years people in those seats were entirely taken for granted by the labour party now the tory party see it as their kind of central mission to keep them on board It's a very different dynamic and I think that's quite interesting. That could become very tokenistic, that could become about, you know, just throw any shovel-ready project, as they say, at them so that they've at least got something on their high street to show for the first term of um, Boris Johnson Tory rule, just trying to kind of throw money at them, even small amounts, just to try and keep them happy. So there's always the danger it becomes kind of tokenistic in that sense. But I can't remember the last time where it felt like that block of people, or at least those kinds of constituencies as representative of a group of people who've been left out of politics for a very long time, being the centre of calculations Mm. by the political class, being the centre of their thinking. That's new. That's quite interesting. And I think it's a positive development, you know, regardless of how it pans out.
2: That's the genius of democracy. Those people, in the way that they voted, by voting for Brexit, and then by voting for the Conservatives several years later, they made themselves matter. You've been listening to the Spike Podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.
0: Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however, you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business.